MSW Media. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. This is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me. I'm Dan Dunn, and this is What We're Drinking. And I am excited about today's show. we got some cool stuff coming on. Uh, in just a little bit of chat, our old pal Curtis Robinson and I chatted up uh, the New York Times chief Washington correspondent, Carl Holtz. Carl Holtz uh, is the man, and he is going to give us the skinny on how drinking happens in Washington, D.C., and how drinking's involved in a lot of the deal-making that goes on there, and we have a lot of fun with him. Also, if you find yourself intimidated by French wine, you're definitely going to want to listen to an interview I have coming up with Chris Dunaway, who is the wine director at the Little Nell Hotel, very posh hotel in Aspen, Colorado. Speaking of which, that's where I am right now. That's where I'm coming to you from, Aspen, Ski Town. You know Aspen. Uh, Believe it or not, I used to live here. Uh, I lived here for about five years. Uh, back in the 90s and a long time ago, the Stone Ages. And it uh, it was great. And um, I mean, great, and sometimes it wasn't. I, I can tell you, when I lived here, the town was in the midst of an identity crisis. This, again, in the mid-90s. I, some locals, mainly business interest, uh, they deemed it a world-class ski resort whose lifeblood was tourist dollars. Uh, a town constantly struggling to find a competitive edge in an industry that had been declining since the boom, boom 80s, skiing was kind of on the decline back then, and snowboarding was just starting to get its legs going. So um, then there were others, by whom I mean but ski bums with access to trust funds and crunchy granola types who worked for the Forest Service, and they thought Aspen was still this funky little mountain town willing and able to obviate overdevelopment and cultural homogenization through political action or sheer force of will. I was a newspaper columnist here at the time, and I was content to survey the battlefield and fire the occasional shot at the local powers that were. And uh, three days before 1996 began, I did just that. Um, I'd been in a sunk in this deep depression brought on by the uh, jarring realization that for the 25th consecutive year, I'd accomplished nothing of any significance in my life. And to make matters worse... Uh, by living and writing and starving in Aspen, I, I was forced to watch all manner of movers and shakers parade into town with their fancy clothes and big wads of cash. And I was consumed with envy. It was shallow of me, to be sure, but it's easy to turn perverted in the face of obscene wealth. And Aspen certainly has that. Uh, during the height of the ski season, the airport was a full-blown circus of private planes, limousines, big busted women in furs draped on the arms of their fat cat sugar daddies. There had been an eclectic mix of freewheeling mavericks who'd migrated here in the 60s and 70s, but they had, for the most part, moved on or gone mad by the 
1990s. And they were replaced by Planet Hollywood, Prada, and worst of all, a bunch of prickly dot-comers from Silicon Valley. Um, the few throwbacks who remained were so bitter. Having watched the rape and pillage of the town by absentee landowners and nouveau riche boomers, that they'd been reduced to kicking and screaming about the sad state of affairs like spoiled children. So during the holidays, let me get a little drink here. There we go. During the holidays, to supplement my meager newspaper income, I waited tables at a local diner called Boogie's. And it was there that I suffered the greatest indignity of my short-lived service industry career. One day, a very powerful Hollywood executive and his family were seated in my section. All of them clearly determined to run me into the ground during the lunch rush while stripping me of what little self-esteem remained. Really, I wasn't cut out for waiting tables. Uh, the kids were screaming at me. The wife screamed at me. Somebody called on the guy's phone, and he, I think he handed it to me so that guy could scream at me. It was about all I could handle, yet somehow I managed to hold it together until it came time to take their dessert order. Now, they'd been fighting the entire meal, the husband and the wife, were clearly there was something going on, okay? So he's, honey, he sneers to his wife, the guy's waiting to take your order. Everyone's ordered but you. And she was chatting with her daughter, and although she clearly saw me and heard him, she chose not to acknowledge either of us. I offered to come back whenever it was she might be ready, but the exec held up a finger to indicate that I should remain there, uh, pen and pad at the ready. Honey, he repeated, and this time with more urgency, the guy is waiting. She just kept talking and talking and talking. And then he got mad. He said, he's waiting, damn it. Now come on. And with that, she turned toward him, and she had first-degree murder in her eyes. It was clear she loathed this man the way sculptors abhor pigeons. And no doubt for many of the same reasons. Then she glanced my way for a moment, just long enough for me to register the utter contempt in which she most assuredly held me and all my kind. And then she returned that frosty gaze to her husband, and she spat out the words, Well, isn't that why they call them waiters? Ouch. Later that afternoon at the newspaper, I was still seething from this encounter, and I penned a column offering service workers tips for surviving difficult guest relations situations. And among the not-so-clever nuggets was this. Whenever you feel you've been mistreated by a paying customer, it is always advisable to avoid direct confrontation and to secretly spit in their food before serving it to them. Now, in retrospect, that wasn't very funny and hardly original. In my defense... I had a uh, lady friend in town visiting, and my libido compelled me to complete the damn column in less than 20 minutes. And as I mentioned, I was angry as hell. But the foo-for-all that ensued after that tip appeared in the newspaper was nothing short of remarkable. Uh, it was my first real experience with this thing I call the Aspen Magnifier. It's the supernatural lens that takes anything cute or funny or tragic that happens here and magnifies it by the power of the brand name of Aspen. That's why companies label products from shitty cars to toilet paper with the A-word. Had everyone left me alone, it would have been a one-day story and never made national headlines. But that didn't happen. The all-powerful Aspen Skiing Company expressed its opprobrium by canceling all of their advertising with the Aspen Daily News, citing the offensive nature of my column. 
The local Chamber of Commerce also killed their ads and dispatched a fax to all its members encouraging them to do the same, and many did. KOA Radio, which was the at the time the most listened to talk radio station in Colorado, dubbed me the Howard Stern of the Rockies. And the Denver Post ran a front page story, front page story about the, quote, war in Aspen. And oh, what a war it was. For five straight weeks, the newspaper's opinion page was filled with letters of support and condemnation. A reporter from Time Magazine called to discuss the matter. Secret meetings were held. Imprecations were exacted. Calls for me to either be cudgeled or canonized rose lustily from the citizenry. Aspen's very survival seemed to hang in the balance. In short, the spit had hit the fan. One side labeled me a no-talent jerk who'd bitten the hand that feeds Aspen by insulting tourists. The manager of the ritzy Little Nell, uh, and I love the hotel now back then, he and I weren't too friendly, but he wrote, uh, Dan Dunn's recent disgusting article in your paper was the height of arrogance and insensitivity towards those who make it possible for us to enjoy living in this wonderful valley. One hopes for his sake that no one with an incurable disease spits in his food. The disenfranchised locals in my camp were equally fiery. One guy wrote, Bless Dan Dunn's twisted heart for really getting the job done in the Daily News. For those of you who find his humor tasteless, hey, don't eat it. The whole thing had me walking around a little more crab-wise than ever before. Constantly having to look over your shoulder is no way to live, particularly for someone smoking as much weed as I was back then. After the thing broke, I was beset by a series of hardships. My complimentary ski pass was pulled. I tore a cartilage in my knee. I received word that an old friend from the East Coast had died in a car accident. I didn't think these were coincidences. I felt that the ski overlords of Fantasyland had put the hex on me, and I couldn't shake it, even after an emergency visit to New Orleans to celebrate Mardi Gras. See you got to understand that Aspen was, and I think still is, a far cry from places like New York City or L.A., where at least the weirdos look weird. And it's much easier to distinguish between two-bit dipshits and truly vile scum. Things aren't ever what they seem up here in the clouds, although the inherent inscrutability has little to do with the altitude. In Aspen, evil comes impeccably attired and well-mannered, and it'll squash you like a bug under a Range Rover before you can say, hey... Was that a Kardashian? Power twists people, and it makes them do awful things. You think your CEO is a motherfucker at work? You should see him on vacation. There's plenty of truth to the old Irish saying, if you want to know what God thinks of money, just look at the people he gives it to. But anyway, I, I, overall, I enjoyed my time here. I loved it, and it ended up launching my career. I left and went to L.A., and, and now here I am talking to you. Uh, but enough... Enough of me talking to you. Let's get me and our Washington correspondent, Curtis Robinson, along with the New York Times chief Washington correspondent, Carl Hulse. Uh, We sat down, had an interview at the Hotel Jerome, and uh, here it is. So where am I right now? Someplace warm, where the beer flows like wine, and beautiful women flock like the salmon of Capistrano. I'm talking about a little place called Aspen. (laughs) Come on, anybody know what that's from? Uh, All right, everybody knows that's from Dumb and Dumber. Uh, With me, I am in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, Forgive me, that sounds douchey, but hey, 
I'm living my best life. What can it does I say? sound a little. It douchey. does sound a little douchey. <laughs> and with speaking of douches, with me right now, I'm kidding. No, with me right now, I have the uh, chief Washington correspondent for what we're drinking with Dan Dunn, Curtis Robinson. Curtis, good to see you. Uh, it's good to good to be with you here, Dan, in uh, beautiful downtown Aspen. We're in the uh, Hotel Jerome, we should say, just upstairs from the J Bar, and uh, it'll be. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how you uh, uh, wind your way through this segment. Yeah, we'll do it. And then, speaking of Washington correspondence, not only do we have what we're drinking, uh, Chief Correspondent, we also have the Chief Washington Correspondent for the New York Times with us, Carl Hulse. How are you, man? Great to be here. And great, drinking. Great to have you, yeah. And 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 this, I'm excited to have you on the show because, you know, we talk about a lot of things on here. We get a lot of celebrities on the show. Uh, you uh, are a celebrity in your own right in, in terms of what, you're, what you do, the coverage you put forth, how long and how what a great job you've been doing for such a long time. But what I'm fascinated about is you don't see covered very much in the media is the drinking culture of Washington, D.C. Because yep. I don't know there if is one realize what a huge part of uh, uh, you know bat deals getting made and all these sorts of things that happen over drinks in Washington D.C. Would you say that is a, that is a the lubricant that keeps the wheels yeah, of government it's, it's, going? It still is. Uh, back in the day, a lot more backroom drinking. Smoke-filled rooms were also filled with booze, right? Yeah. And the Capitol. I always tell people that. Uh, it's sort of a, it can be a floating cocktail party because there's a lot of booze that goes on in the Capitol. And I used to cart in like at the end of a session, five or six, you know, cases of beer for everybody to share. And every once in a while you'd come in and the Capitol Police would kind of look at you and go, can you bring that in here? Yeah, I guess he can bring that in there. So when I was an extremely young reporter, I was sent over to the offices of G.V. Sonny Montgomery, who was a... Uh, very prominent congressman, House chairman from Mississippi, chairman of the Veterans Affairs Committee. In fact, the VA uh, veterans bill is called the GV Sonny Montgomery bill. So I go in his office about 9.30, 10 o'clock. He's from Meridian, Mississippi. I sit down. He pours himself a glass of uh, whiskey and pours me, a, uh, starts to pour me a glass of whiskey. And I go, congressman, it's 9.30 in the morning. He goes, yep. Nope. So uh, I didn't do that, but yeah. I was still scared. But a lot of lot of drinking, but was behind the scenes drinking, not so much big prominent drinking. Now, it's different in Washington I, now. I'd have to say it's kind of a craft cocktail sort of town. There's a lot of very new, uh, younger appealing bars where you can go and get really a really fancy uh, cocktail. I still kind of uh, stick with the... Wine, beer, and whiskey. Sure. Tequila. Well, you guys are both, you both spend, obviously, a lot of time in Washington. Um, do you think they put a lot of thought into it? Do you think people put some thought into what they're drinking? I'm talking about politicians. Like, what that, because what does it say about them? You know, if you sit down with, there's a, do you, would you say there's a certain expectation if you sat down with um, Marco Rubio versus uh what would marco rubio drink curtis i don't know i don't know that, that would be hard but you know you you would like to think it to be a rum drink of some kind yeah. you'd like to think that but you know uh, the daiquiri the first daiquiri in uh, america was made at the bar of the army navy club imported from cuba actually the building where we have our offices so the first daiquiri was there so. right there okay uh, but i don't know that i don't know that marco's a big drinker do you think i they think, think he's think a beer drinker do you think maybe. they yeah. think about it what what because it's always this idea of what your drink says about oh, you. oh of course I, I, when i covered politics in the south one of one of the rules if you went to do things and it, it was you know one of the things you were asked is 
don't take a picture of the candidate holding a beer or, or taking a drink because, you know, that would not be beneficial and his opponents could use it. So, so yeah, I imagine that, that in uh, today's world, you got to think like, you know, you're constantly being a brand. So, so yeah, they, they probably think that, you know, it's uh, uh, the politicians are one thing, but you know, probably everybody's like that. I mean, the, the, the lobbyists and others, there's a, a, a you know, uh, particularly among Southern politicians and, and, Kentucky politicians, you know, there's a there's a bias toward bourbon, bourbon, and uh, and that's good because but I would say this bourbon bourbon is God's own drink. There's a lot of drinking, but there's less. There's not a lot of public drinking because of social media. The phone, yeah. the phone is a politician's enemy. Also, can be a reporter's enemy too. Because if people are out, if you're out too late, if you've had too much to drink, there's always somebody around with a phone. It could end your career. I mean, not it, necessarily it, a politician, but it could certainly end a reporter's well, career. Well, end a politician's yeah. career, something really bad. I mean, there there could be, just take a little picture or video that gets out the next day. I mean, you could be in real trouble. So people are cognizant of that. But I did have a great experience recently where I was invited. I'm not going to say any, who any of the members were involved in this, but I had a book that came out recently, and a couple of uh, members of the House wanted to get together and talk about my book. Uh, and they invited me into a back uh, committee office in the middle of the day on a Friday, and we sat back in this fantastic office with a great history, drinking whiskey and smoking cigars, which, were, which of course, are banned in the Capitol, by the way. Uh, so, you know, there's still that. That's still there, but it's just, it's hidden away. By the way, that, I know that. That's AOC all the way. She's <laughs> a big whiskey yeah, and cigar yeah, yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, she was name, a bartender. She can was. you name the elected officials who committed this felony? Uh, no, I could have uh, put under pressure, but I'm not going to do it here today. <laughs> not going to do it here? We're, we're not going to waterboard be, that you. Would but be the, that would be the... Only That'd be scotch and waterboard. We, 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 yeah, we might scotch and waterboard you, but that we would be the only you. breaking news that's ever happened on the show. Uh, <laughs> that's not true. That's so not good true. cigars too. I, I'm not saying for sure, but there may have been some Cubans in there. No kidding. Yeah. Would you say, Mart? Would you say it's still kind of a martini town too? I mean, I always think of Washington D.C. and I think of. I of, think whiskey is big, actually, because younger. I have younger sons. They're big. Uh, bourbon drinkers and I think because of the age of so much of Washington the workforce is young uh, you know they're 20s and 30s because they're not being paid that much and so there's a lot of you know high-end whiskey my kids like tin cup and uh, sure yeah, made so, here Colorado. yeah, yeah. Made and, here well that. one of my sons lives in Colorado so okay yeah. they like the Colorado whiskey you see a lot of that and you'll see well you know the official Colorado whiskey for for uh, uh, Aspen is, is probably Stranahan's really yeah. Yeah. Well, Stranahan's is the most famous whiskey in Colorado, period. Probably, yeah. yeah. Tin cup. Yeah. Not probably. Well, I'm we'll, telling you right now. We'll definitely. Have, so we'll it's, definitely it's definitely the most. Uh, now, Stranahan's, of course, was started by George Stranahan and a guy named Jess Graber. Uh, and it has since the idea was born here, but they're in Denver. But Stranahan's is, is, is definitely in the, in the, in the whiskey world. It's the most well-known. Uh, and one of the very, and one of the first really, this new resurgence of craft whiskeys that are it's American whiskeys. Stranahan's is in, you know, is, is on the Mount Rushmore of those. Like yes. it was one of the very first ones. Uh, the guy, Rob Dietrich, who was the master distiller there for about 13 years, really brought that brand up. He's now left and gone to uh, blackened, which is Metallica's whiskey. Uh, he took over for a guy named uh, Dave Pickerel and Dave Pickerel is a whiskey made a whiskey that I I'm sure gets dry, uh, uh, sipped a lot in Washington DC called whistle pig. 
okay, if yeah. you can get it. If right. you can get it, Whistle Pig. Get it, Whistle Pig is one of the best whiskeys in the world. It's it's made in Vermont, but, uh, but that is a big. Uh, that's a status symbol in Washington. Whistle if you, Pig. If you have a little of that that you want to share. Well, Carl, guess who can get Whistle Pig anytime he wants it? Well, then I'm glad that we This made, guy right here. I'm glad yeah. we made In fact, this they connection. just sent me a little care package last week. It was Whistle Pig Coffee, Whistle Pig, the new rye that they put out, and then the uh, maple syrup they also make. They should, they should do one special for Washington, the Whistle Pig. Tell me how you're going to vote next week. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, watch, I will say a lot of craft cocktails out around town and you know i like to have one once in a while but it seems to me they take a long time to make and uh, yeah and co- yeah. sometimes come in a kind of a smaller glass and i'll drink it and i'll say okay can i have a drink now yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna we i know you you got a, a thing going on. i want to wrap this up but i want to i'm gonna throw this out and either one of you can jump in here i'll throw out a politician's name and you tell me either what you think they would drink or they should drink. What so just just off our own biases. What okay, good. Yeah, what, we're not saying that this is fact, and yeah. Carl's not certainly not saying that he. You know, but Carl what you think? Not know. What, what they? What they? If you the first drink that pops in your head when I say this politician. All right, we'll go first with uh, Bernie Sanders. Red something wine. something maple with got a maple syrup edge. Too. <laughs> <laughs> gotta do whistle that. pig. Ma- <laughs> whistle pig. It's got to be whistle pig. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Well, I think she would probably try and drink like a local beer to show her uh, woman on the street vibe. Okay. Absolutely. Craft beer. Sam Adams, maybe. Yeah, Sam Adams would okay. be a good call. Sam Adams seasonal. Who's the, uh, who's the guy? Uh, why am I losing it now? The nut. I'm not agreeing Carl's with anything you said. Uh, yeah, no, let us, sorry. No, who's the guy that was the wrestling coach in Ohio? And is that Jim it? Jordan. Jim Jordan. What does Jim Jordan drink? I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking uh, vodka. I'm thinking that's a vodka, vodka? drinker. I do. I By think the way, vodka people drinker. kick vodka around, right? Okay, let me just say something. I like vodka, but people kick it around like it. You know, here's what people forget about vodka. Vodka is a drink that was like guys named Ivan and and you know and and tough big guys. No, no, I'm, thinking, vo- I'm thinking he's a vodka drinker. That's what I think. So speaking of Ohio, though, John Boehner, one of the more famous everything. Uh, no, uh, what comes to mind? John Merlot. <laughs> Merlot was his actual drink. No kidding. Yeah, he really that he was a red wine guy. See, if he just thrown it out, I would have said, oh, Merlot. Yeah, <laughs> a red glass of red wine and a big cigarette. Donald Trump. Nothing. Nothing. What's a What's a drink that can kind of soothe you at night? He, whatever he, uh, it's hemlock. Like, something that's <laughs> yeah, again. I don't agree with that. again. Uh, uh, none uh, of us but, agree with that felonious. felonious but, uh, say, statement. Something the, that could the be opinions. Com- the opinions expressed here are all mine. But they're what, not. They're not. Maybe Carl something with warm milk. Because yeah, it could kind of slow him down. Any of the sponsors we used to have for this show were not involved in any of this editing. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Who, I mean, they don't. It doesn't strike me. Is it, does Hillary? Do you think Hillary Clinton drinks? Hillary drinks. Oh, yeah. I, I've had beers with Hillary at a party. She, yeah. liked, in fact, she ha, she sort of tried to uh, make herself sound a little more normal, talking about you know that she'd like to have a beer. Uh, she would go to the bar after something happened with reporters. She famously had shots with John McCain. No kidding. I Was, think they were shots of. Did McCain? The McCain like to drink a little bit. I, you know. I presume he did. I do. That was a famous uh, thing. How about Obama? Uh, he liked beer, red wine, also. He, but he had wishes he could have a cigarette with that at the time. You know, he had it, quit drinking. But uh, President Obama was very. He would, he, you know, measured and moderate drinker. Lindsey Graham, like uh, John uh, Boehner, grew up in a tavern. I did uh, order 
Lindsey Graham a, a drink one night at a bar. We were around. I said, come over and have a drink. And he wanted a white Russian. White Russian. That's funny. Just saying. I got a, a, a quick one for you. My, so I'm friends with uh, Jonathan Goldsmith, a.k.a. the most interesting man in the world from the commercials. Oh, okay. So Jonathan uh, moved to Vermont uh, years ago. And when Obama was running for his second term, he went to Vermont and they, it, Jonathan was part of the welcoming committee. And it turns out Obama was a huge fan of the most interesting man in the world commercials. So his birthday was coming up. And his friends, uh, is, you know, friends that he's known for a long time, they were going to do a big birthday party thing for him at Camp David. I, I'm assuming, is there a golf course there at Camp David? I think or, there might be yeah, a few right holes. There. Okay, yeah. So they, they went out there. And so Jonathan called me. And Jonathan's, you know, he's pushing 80 now. So this was probably about oh, five or six years ago, something. And uh, he called me. And I was on, in L.A. And it was about 11 o'clock at night. And I was thinking, Jesus, why is he calling so late from the East Coast? Like something must have happened. And he answered the phone and he said, Dunny, calls me Dunny, I just had the most amazing night of my life. So they flew him into Camp David. Obama goes out, they're playing golf, they come back, they arranged for, there's like an, they put up an archery range, I don't know if it's there yeah, all the I time. Yeah, they do have one. Yeah, they, so he's there and they arranged for Jonathan to be there dressed up like the most interesting man in the world. And they pull up in these golf carts and he's standing there and they had a falcon and Jonathan puts his arm out, and the falcon flies down, lands on his arm, and he says, "Welcome, my friends." You know, and like, and so that night he said he was. In, I've never been to Camp David, but there's a pool, a pool table, and a real. It's very old school. Yeah, like bowling. So they were in there, just the two of them, playing pool and drinking scotch. And he said, and I said, I said Obama was drinking. He says, "Oh, he likes his, he likes his whiskey. Yeah, we had a few." And he called and he said, here I am, this poor kid from the Bronx, and now I am was in Camp David sipping whiskey with the President of the United States. He said, "I that was my... Uh, that had to be a I've moment. Had a, no, I've no. had a good life, I guess, uh, at this point. Barack Obama was a pleasant and interesting person to hang around and have a conversation with. Yeah. As opposed to... Uh, Curtis. Why do you look at me when you say that? I, oh, that's right. I didn't even just look at you. I said it. I called it out. You haven't been saying it. You're, you're oddly quiet as the Washington correspondent for what we're drinking. I think he wants drinking. a drink. Yeah, he's ready to go. Well, and we do have to go because Carl has to uh, has more important things to he do does. He does than talk to us. But I, I appreciate you shedding light on this because people, it's an undercover thing. Even our own Washington correspondent has yet to send in a dispatch about drinking in Washington. Oh, but we're about to fix that. It's if coming. You, it's if, coming uh, soon. If you, if you want to talk to someone about drinking in Washington, I am probably a good guy. For All right. That. Well, yeah. So now we're, I, I want to ramp up this coverage in the future. I want to have. I, I want knew have I was going to lose my job. Regular with the reports. He's, and your, he's your stringer. Now. I think you've just uh, lost. Uh, your I, knew, I knew that was going to happen, and uh, uh, I'm sure that uh, his day job won't get in the way at no, all. No, they won't care. So, Carl Hulse, Curtis Robinson, thank you for this. Uh, lively conversation and uh, we'll see you again soon thank you all right this is ed lee and you're listening to what we're drinking with dan dunn podcast thank you now thank you ed and thanks to carl holse and uh, curtis robinson i uh, hope you guys enjoyed that and now uh, i don't know about you but i'm intimidated by french wine i find it uh, the labels are hard to read it's uh, hard to pronounce i don't i just don't know enough about it but a few years ago, I did come to Aspen, and I took a, a three-day intensive uh, seminar uh, workshop, I guess, on French wine at the Little Nell Hotel. Uh, and one of the guys that was there, one of our instructors, 
was a guy by the name of Chris Dunaway, who is now the wine director at the Little Nell Hotel. He's a badass, uh, and he's on the verge of becoming a master sommelier. And I went and chatted up Chris and with some tips. I uh, gave us some tips on uh, French wine, and I think anybody who's a wine drinker out there is going to want to listen to this. And here it is. You know, one of the things I like to do here on what we're drinking uh, is to uh, pass on some valuable information to you about wine. Uh, regular listeners will know recently we had uh, some tips on Barolo from our friends at Fontana Freda. Uh, and how to drink Barolo, five things you got to know about Barolo. So whenever I get a chance to talk to somebody who knows their shit, as we say, I take advantage of that and I do it for you. So I have, again, sacrificed for you. I've come to Aspen, Colorado. I'm sitting in a chair nine, which is a bar lounge inside the Little Nell Hotel at the base of Aspen Mountain. It is one of the most beautiful properties in the world. I love it here. Um, and, uh, it's snowing outside. I can see people coming down the mountain and I figure what better atmosphere to drink some delicious wine and to drink it with a man who knows wine like the back of his hand, (laughs) back of his hand. I'm assuming he knows the back of his hand. He is the wine director here at the Nell. Uh, my old pal Chris Dunaway. How are you, buddy? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for thanks for having me, and thanks for pouring. I've already got a glass here. What are we drinking? Yeah. So uh, the glass that you have in front of you is 2017 Domaine Gino Boulanger uh, Merceau Claude du Cromon, um, and this is a single vineyard wine from the village of Merceau in Burgundy in the Côte d'Or, and one of the most uh, hallowed grounds for the Chardonnay grape. Um, exceptional quality. Um, and excited to pour it for you this afternoon. I'm excited to try it. And now what you just said to me kind of teed up what I want to get to here because even me, and I attended, uh, a couple of years ago, I attended a French wine, uh, basically like a, a immersive three-day seminar here at the Nell uh, to learn about French wine. And I feel like I did learn about French wine, but I'll tell you what, it's still intimidating. And I think a lot of people out there find it intimidating. And so what I want to ask you today, and first let's get a little bit of this wine in us here. I'm going to cheers you. Absolutely. Here we go. And uh, you, let me see here. Mm. Wow. It's not terrible, right? Tell me about that wine, though, before we move on. Like, what, what am I getting here? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So this is a wine that is produced in the village of Merceau. Um, and it is in quality on par with what I would say is Premier Cru quality. Okay. Um, it is a vineyard that is not classified as such, uh, but because of slight climate change and kind of the shifting uh, of those sort of conditions, you get a wine that previously in years past, maybe a generation ago, that might have been a little bit more on the thin side, uh, has kind of come into its own. It's producing quality that's far beyond what anyone thought it was capable uh, a generation ago. Uh, but it is 100% Chardonnay from Merceau from the vineyard of Clos du Cromon. Um, and it's a 2017. So mm-hmm. do you know what this would cost retail? Um, if you were to buy this retail, you're probably looking at spending, I would say, around $65, $75 And that, I think that's a steal for a wine like this. Incre- it's an incredible deal. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably the most challenging thing these days is finding wines from Burgundy um, that aren't in that triple figure or, or four figure price tag. Um, that are drinking exceptionally well. Um, but that's the trick with Burgundy is finding the deal. Well, let me back you up here since we're, gonna, we're doing sort of a French wine 101. 
<clears throat> Tell people the difference, first of all, between the, the regions of just the, the, the broad strokes of Burgundy and Bordeaux. Yeah, Burgundy and Bordeaux. So Burgundy is going to be a region that's further inland, um, not on the coast. It's going to be south of Dijon and actually a lot closer to Switzerland um, than the rest of Europe. Uh, and it specializes in red wines from Pinot Noir and white wines from Chardonnay. And typically they're single varietal and often come from smaller tracts of land and, and um, smaller ownership. Whereas Bordeaux, Bordeaux is a little bit more um, kind of on a large scale. It is coastal, right on the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and it is typically a blend of a few different grapes, uh, mostly Cabernet Sauvignon if you're on what's called the left bank, blended with some Merlot and Cabernet Franc. Uh, Petit Verdot. And then on the right bank, you have a little bit more Cabernet Franc dominant and Merlot dominant wines, but always a blend. You'd rarely ever see them single varietal. And they typically are more often influenced by oak, a little bit more powerful, fuller in body, um, and just a little bit more structured as well. So when you when you hear people talk about like earthy French wines, like Pinot, mm-hmm. that's going to be your Burgundy probably more, right? Yeah. I mean, you get both earthy and savory and both regions, but Burgundy tends to be a little bit more sensual, a little bit more kind of finely tuned. You have a little bit more of that undergrowth, forest floor, mushroom sort of aroma and flavor profile, especially with age. Um, And then in Bordeaux, you typically get a little bit more fruit. And I think we've had a lot of warmer vintages in in recent, recent past. And that tends to kind of coax out a little bit more ripeness, a little bit more richness. And so you, now if someone wants to get into French wine, let's say somebody who's Familiar with wine, mostly sticks to California, Oregon, Washington, wines from the States. How does someone approach? So, for instance, you told us about this wine right here. It's mm-hmm. $65. Can people go, can people get into Burgundy and Bordeaux without spending a ton of money? You absolutely can. Um, you know, and that's, that's the thing. It takes a little bit of groundwork. It takes a little bit of uh, study, especially with Burgundy. Um, because they'll tell you that the best quality is Grand Cru, but that represents 2% of the entire output of Burgundy, which is already a small region. So if you're buying only the top 2% and the whole world wants it, you're going to spend a lot more money than you're you would You're talking about like Domaine to. Romani Conti. Exactly. So, yeah, okay. yeah, so Domaine de la Romani Conti and, and all the other big names like that. But if you do your, your, your uh, homework, you'll notice that there are some regions beyond, you know, Vaughan Romanet, which is where Romani Conti is from, uh, for instance, in places like Bone and Saint Romain and Ozy de Ress that are producing some incredible value, but just not a lot of people will buy it because they rely too heavily on maybe a point score or, or reputation. Uh, but like I said, with this one, with, with climate change, is warming up a little bit in areas where it was previously too cold to produce wines of uh, incredible intrigue. And in those regions on the peripheral, are finding exceptional value. So where would you say, you, you mentioned the point scores and stuff, where does somebody go, <clears throat> like is there an online place where someone can kind of go to just figure it out and go, okay, maybe I don't want to just go with Parker's score. I want to, you know, wh- where would someone go to find information about Burgundy wines that they could go out yeah, and Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one source that I like to, to go to is actually um, Antonio Galoni's uh, website, Venice. Venice is an exceptional source um, for reviews on certain wines. I also reference that site more often than others for vintages as well. Um, in places as marginal as Burgundy, your knowledge of vintages goes such a long way. Um, and what he does is he actually evaluates those vintages and his team evaluates those vintages year in and year out. So, you know, other, other sources may rate a vintage and then that stays concrete. 
and then they move on to the next vintage, whereas Venice will actively go back and look at those vintages again and again. And you notice that their scores are a little bit different, but they're a little bit more in tune with how the wines are developing, which I think is extremely important. Wines change over time, and you know some vintages may be heralded at first for being the vintage of the century you know, to hype it up. But um, 10, 15 years later, those wines might not be holding up as well as previously thought. Okay. Um, and Venice is one that I think really invests a lot of time into making sure that those wines are, are showing as well as they are. And, and they're the first to admit if they were wrong about something. And I think that that's very admirable, especially in a, in a, in a, in a topic like this that's just so varied and, and difficult to understand. Are there, <clears throat> what, are there any tips on reading a label? I find that's a little bit intimidating, reading a French wine label. Yeah, I think the intimidation is, is kind of grounded that it's in, in French, um, first exactly, of all, yes. pronunciation <laughs> and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm always there to help my guests pronounce better. If, if, for instance, if they were to look at this, this wine that we're drinking and say, oh, I really like Mersault, I would repeat like, oh, Mersault, yeah, excellent. Wines are, are incredible from there, um, you know, and, and I'm happy to kind of guide them in the right direction. But what I think it's best to start with is understand what each village is capable of producing. So Merceau, for instance, uh, lower water table, they can cellar their wines a little bit longer. And those wines tend to gain a little bit more texture and richness. Um, and for those that are trying to ease into Burgundy from, say, California, for instance, or the Santa Rita Hills, Merceau is a great place to start because of that. So understanding what the village is capable of producing, I think, is the most important and then finding a handful of producers that you... I'm talking about, though, like just what the name... Of, so if I'm looking here, it says Marceau up, uh-huh. up the top, right underneath Clos du Cromin. Yeah, Clos du Cromin. What is that? So Clos du Cromin is a small vineyard site that is known for producing exceptional quality. Um, that's very distinct and very consistent year in and year out. Um, Clos, actually, <laughs> the definition of Clos, according to the, the Burgundians, is a walled-in vineyard with a wall so high that a man on a horse can't jump over it. That's what so it means. That's okay, exactly, that's great. That is the old definition. So Clos uh, just references a walled vineyard, and then so Clos du Cromon. And then you've got 2017, the year under, uh-huh. and then this would be the producer. Correct. Below, right, okay. And so you'll notice on the label that the, the village, Merceau, is always in the largest print. And that is just kind of a reflection of the mentality that Burgundians have that wines are from a place and that these wines speak of the place that they're from. So you'll see Merceau is the largest. Below that, Clos du Cromon uh, is slightly smaller than that. So again, focusing on the place. And then, of course, uh, the producer in the smallest print. By the way, people that are going nuts right now, I'm going to take a picture of this and post it on my Instagram, because yeah. right now you're going, I can't see it. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, So check at the imbiber, check out the Instagram. I'll have a picture of this label. You'll see what Chris is talking about in terms of reading this label. Because I really do think... To some degree, I know I've been out before, like back in the day, and I, you know, you're on a date. You don't want to order the wine because yeah. you're worried you're going to completely mangle the pronunciation of it. Oh, yeah. So maybe just ask the, uh, what do you think of this one, to the psalm, and have them say it to you. Like, yeah. I thought that was really smooth, what you said earlier. If, if they, Because I find myself when people, I tend to get it a lot more with like whiskeys and stuff, which is more my specialty. So people will say, oh, Oban, I love it. Yeah. And I'll go, oh, yeah, I like Oban, too. You yeah, know, and if they try to say it the way you know, or I'll just go, "You're so stupid." <laughs> I guess you can't do that here at the Little Nail. Um, <laughs> now, uh, what about uh, so? Any other any other just essentials you think for somebody who's trying to get into French wine? 
wants to kind of, you know, wants to move away from or just experiment. Like, I, you know, I just a ton of my friends, I live in California and they're just, you know, they just stick to wines from the West Coast of, of the United States. If I wanted to, what's a tip to just try to get them? Um, yeah, tip. Don't think that you have to spend $100 a bottle to enjoy a great bottle of French wine. For instance, there's a lot of value in Bordeaux, in the Appalachians particular, uh, Bordeaux Superior, or even a designation called Cru Bourgeois um, is a great thing to look for on labels of Bordeaux. You can typically find a bottle for $25, $30 a bottle that's incredible. Um, and then if you like more of spicy, richer, riper wines, um, the Southern Rhone Valley is a great source for wines to kind of ease in transition from the new world because they produce wines that are a little bit riper, a little bit more spicy and savory, um, but are easy to enjoy because they do have that density and richness of fruit. And something as simple as a Cote du Rhone, about 25 to $30 a bottle, um, I find is incredibly enjoyable on a night to night basis. Would um, you say, would you say, I would guess you can probably find more value in France than you could in Northern California, right? Because it's you know, the value up in, you know, you're not going to find many cheap, good wines from Napa, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Napa Valley, um, extraordinarily expensive is the land. And and for that reason, a lot of the wines kind of reflect that, that, you know, need to pay the rent sort of, you know, mentality that they are, uh, designed to be, to be ripe and no expenses spared. And I have had some of the cult Napa Valley wines with significant age, and they are some of the most compelling wines I've ever tasted in my life. Um, but if you are looking for value, my best advice is when you go to a wine store, trust that the, the retailer has your best interest at heart. You really kind of have to put your uh, trust in them to deliver that sort of incredible experience. Say, and be honest, say, I, I'm getting into French wine. I don't want to spend a lot of money, but I want something of exceptional value uh, that has incredible typicity uh, that shows what that grape is capable of producing. Um, and then it has a good story. And then for me, the, the last thing is, does it have sustainable farming practices? Because often those that practice uh, their farming technique that way put their heart and soul into producing the best possible wines. Um, and I really found that a lot of success going into a store with that mentality. Chris, where can people, are you, do you do the social media? People find you on social media anywhere? You can find me on social media. Do you do, um, any, wine, you do any wine posting on there or what? I, from time to time, you know, if I find something uh, that's incredible, I will post. Um, you know, my, my predecessor said, you know, we don't, we don't post a lot of bottle shots here, he said, but we do open a lot of great wine. But every now and again, I think if you find uh, a really great wine that's worth sharing, I am always uh, excited to, to post that on my Instagram and, and kind of give a few words about it. What's your Instagram? So Instagram is uh, CN Dunaway. There you go. You heard it here. Chris Dunaway, the, the wine director at The Little Nell in Aspen, Colorado. If you are ever in the area, swing by. And uh, tell him Dan sent you. That'll get you not much, but, uh, you know. But anyway, Chris, really appreciate it, man. Thanks for helping us to understand French wine a little bit better. Of course, Dan. Thanks for being here. Cheers, man. All right. Cheers. That's John Denver. I met John back in the day when he used to live here. He was a resident uh, unfortunately died in a plane crash. John Denver. Great. Great stuff from him. Um, I want to thank Chris Dunaway for that. That was, a, that was a cool piece. And I want to thank you for listening. Um, always. I always feel good about having you on board with me. 
and uh, Carl Holst and Curtis Robinson. And I'm going to call it a show, I think, here because, uh, you know, I'm going to go out and maybe do some snowboarding. I'll see you next time. Oh, and be sure to follow me at The Imbiber on Instagram and Twitter. All right. Peace out.